Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Uh, welcome to the show. Over the weekend, a lot of the world, myself included, was shocked by the sudden passing of the actor Matthew Perry. Matthew was just 54 years old, and I think what you've been seeing in terms of the world mourning his loss is a reflection of just how much he meant to people. So last year, he and I got on stage at the Hot Docs Theatre in downtown Toronto to do an interview in front of a live audience to talk about his book. His book's called uh, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. The Big Terrible Thing in question, is addiction. Matthew's struggles with addiction. And as you'll hear, and as he talks about, Matthew struggled with addiction for most of his life, including while he was on TV in Friends. But back to what he he meant to people. I remember um, backstage, we were kind of chatting and we were talking a little bit about Canada and we were talking a little bit about the CBC and talking about our parents. I remember a really one of my favorite moments, just if I can just tell this story, one of my favorite moments was we were in this kind of tiny cramped uh, green room for the longest time. It was so small. And the introduction to Matthew was going on <laughs> for a long time. Like they were announcing everything that he had done, every single movie that he'd been in. And it just went on and on and on. And then they started on the sponsors, the people who were sponsoring the conversation that night. And it had just been going on. And, and Matthew looked at me and he said, um, I can't remember a time I wasn't in this room. And I thought that was so funny. And I started laughing. And he said, you know where I got that line from? And I said, where? He said, I was in the fountain uh, filming the opening to Friends. Me and, and the other cast members of Friends. We had just met one another. We were in the fountain. And we took forever. And we were so cold. And he said... Um, I looked at them and I said, I can't remember a time I wasn't in this fountain. And we became immediate friends after that. And then we walked out onto the stage and I remember on stage, Matthew got to hear from people who had felt this deep loneliness, had felt isolated at some point in their lives, felt sad. And they watched his work on Friends to get them through it. I remember watching his face on stage and realizing that he was realizing what his work meant to so many people. And I'm so glad, especially with the news this weekend, that he got to have that moment. In honor of Matthew's passing, I want you to hear that conversation on the podcast as we remember a great Canadian today. Here is my conversation from November of 2022 in front of a live audience with Matthew Perry. I just wanted to say what a warm welcome to a fellow Canadian. Very nice to be back here. It's lovely to have you. I've been looking forward to this. I, congratulations on the book. I really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you very much. How's the, how's the process been of just talking about it? How have you it's found? been, you know, it was, it's, it's been fun at times, and then it's been sad because it's a difficult road I've had, you know? But what it's all about is helping people, and I've heard already five stories of people that read the book and checked into treatment. The book is called Friends, and, uh, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. 
And the big terrible thing is, of course, your, your struggles with addiction over the years that you talk about in this book. Um, it's, a, it's a dark book. It's a real book. It's a, it's a very funny book. But again, um, there's, there's reality there, and there's darkness there. And I want to start kind of where all that began, which is the first time you had a drink you write about. Yeah. You were 14 in the backyard somewhere in Ontario, right? Ottawa. In Ottawa. Uh, there you go. Some more people. The home of the senators. Yeah. We can... <laughs> We got to get this done. They got a long drive yeah, back yeah, tonight. Yeah, they got a long drive. Um, you were with a, a couple of buddies. What do you remember from that night? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, that was pretty heavy. I was with uh, my best friends, uh, the Murray brothers, and uh, we decided we didn't know what we were doing, you know. And uh, they got some beers, and I got a, a bottle of wine called Anwar's Baby Duck. <laughs> is the name of it. And I drank the entire bottle, and lay in the ground and looked at the skies and just felt better than I ever had in my entire life. And I thought to myself, this is probably what normal people feel like all the time. Well, who are normal people? <laughs> you. <laughs> no. Um, you know, pe- people who just walked the face of the earth, people and... I finally felt at home for the very first time. As soon as I drank alcohol, I just, I just loved it, and I had a much different reaction than the Murrays did, and I had a much different reaction than normal people have. Normal people have a drink, and they feel a little you know, woozy, and then they you know, go home and go to work. I have a drink, and for the first time in three weeks, the life, life seems to make sense. And... Why would you not want to drink if that happened to you all the time? But, but even at the beginning, Matthew, you talk about how, like, even when you were a little baby, there were, you still had an experience with pills. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's tough because I don't, I'm going to tell you a story, and I don't blame my parents at all for this, and you'll see why, but I was a colicky kid, and I used to cry all the time, and I was constantly crying. And uh, my parents took me to a doctor, and he was an older doctor, and he wore a white coat, and he said, if your baby's crying, just give him this. And they said, okay. And it was phenobarbital, which is a major barbiturate and a very addictive thing. And I was 30 days old. And they gave it to me for 30 days. So from 30 to 60, and there's pictures of me looking like knocked out. Like, my face was all squinched, and I was like... And they would laugh, because, you know, stone babies are fun, I guess. <laughs> but I know that it affected my sleep forever. I don't really sleep that well, and I'm pretty sure it's because of that. But if I was a parent, and it was 1970, and I was given this by a doctor, and the baby stopped crying, I would do it too. But, you know, now it's like, well, you crazy <laughs> what do you what do you feel when you start disclosing that kind of thing in the book like that that like what what, what occurred to you when you heard that story about when you were a baby um, it was an interesting thing writing the book was pretty easy writing the book it, it was like cleansing it was like a wonderful experience I just wrote all these terrible things I got them down on the page and um, but reading it was almost impossible. It was like I disassociated a little bit, and I looked at this book, which I had to read because I had to do the audio the next day. Oh, you had to do it out loud. And I had, had to do it out loud, yeah. Um, 
but I looked at the book and I was just like, this guy has had like the most torturous life. I can't believe it. And then I realized it was me that I was talking about. And, you know, it was, I, I literally had to sleep in a different room. I was working on a laptop and I, I moved the laptop into my living room so I could sleep that night because it was so powerfully dark and for so long I didn't know what was going on. I do now. Um, and that's why the best thing about me is I can um, help people if they ask me to. Um, yeah, I can. It's an interesting thing to read the book as a Canadian because I think that we get some context from it that perhaps American audiences wouldn't necessarily get. Like you, very early on in the book, talk about that your mom, your mom worked for the prime minister. That's your mom right. worked for Prime Minister Trudeau. Mm -hmm. And that you say that like the, he was the most charismatic man had stolen your mother from you in the daytime. Well, she, she was, you know, Alice and Janney in the West Wing. You know, that's what my mother was for uh, Pierre Trudeau. And she was beginning to become a little bit of a celebrity herself, being seen with him a lot, you know? And I always have this image of this big ballroom, like this room like this, this big ballroom, and my mother walking in and taking all sort of the glory because she was beautiful and people just knew her. And, and I was like five feet behind her and all I wanted was for her to turn around and, you know, Focus on me and like be with be with me. You took me and it's I, I want I, I want I want your company. I want you to help help me. I'm a kid, you know. And uh, she never really did that. And what I've realized as an older guy is that I I still do that a little bit. What do you mean? It's the it's the it's and this is all part of addiction and all that stuff, but. I still want the unavailable, the person who's not turning around. I still like want that person to turn around and notice me. And that forms, as a guy who doesn't drink or do drugs, that's, some, that's like a little bit of a drug for me when a girl goes, I don't want you. Oh, no, I do want you. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a drug for me because all I wanted was for her to turn around or mention me on the news or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And she, you know... She didn't do anything wrong. She didn't. She was just doing her job. But that's something that, you know, from a young age, it, it hurt me. I mean, there's also the the Justin Trudeau part of the book, which right. I really got a kick out of, which yeah. is that you grew up with the prime minister currently. Yeah. You know. I mean? You you may have beat him up. Yeah. It's well, I don't know. It's still unclear whether you beat him up or not. The Murray brothers that I spoke about earlier. Those guys are my best friends since third grade. And they and I started talking in this kind of interesting way. Maybe you're familiar with it. But we would say to each other, could that, could that teacher be any meaner? Could I have more of a detention? And I took that way of speaking and made like $100 million off of it. <laughs> These two very nice guys, they did not do that. <laughs>
<laughs> but they're n nice about it, you know what I mean? You would expect somebody to be kind of mean about that, but they're just great. You know, the Murray brothers also were there when I first drank, so, you know, f*** you. <laughs> and were they there when you potentially, potentially beat up the prime minister? That's their story, is that, is that I beat up uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Trudeau. <laughs> and, you know, it's possible, and... Uh, it became a Twitter thing where he, I, I said it on Twitter, I guess, and he responded, yes, and wouldn't you want to punch Chandler in the face? <laughs> and I think we should have another battle, is what he said. And I immediately wrote back, you have your own army. <laughs> you win. Good luck in all your endeavors. Stop writing to me. Run your country. <laughs> So I'm not sure if it happened. An another Canadian who means a lot to you in more of like um, in more of like a path that you sort of started to follow, and something you started to aspire to was was Michael J. Fox. Right. He yeah. he, he he was not just in, he was not just like a, an actor you liked, but he sort of represented something you wanted to aspire to. Yeah, Michael J. Fox, and I was young. I'd done a couple of plays in school. And Michael J. Fox was it, man. At the, when I was in ninth grade, Michael J. Fox had just done Back to the Future, and like there was smoke coming out of my ears. I was so jealous of this guy, right? And he had, at the time, the number one TV show and the number one movie at the same time. So he was huge. And I don't know anybody else who's done that except me. <laughs> <laughs> You had, you had that with the whole nine yards, I had and you had that with friends. the whole nine yards yeah. out, and friends, of course, and they were number one at the same time. So I thought that was pretty cool. And maybe only Canadians get to do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't they know. choose one Canadian every 30 years. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll get to Friends in, in a second, but before you get the role on Friends, you move to Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, you, you go to school, you act in school and plays, and next thing you know, you, you have an aptitude for acting. You start to get this attention for being a, an actor. You shoot a movie with River Phoenix. You're shooting a sitcom with Valerie Bertinelli. Uh, you're hanging out with this new kind of crew of, of buddies. Yeah. Hank Azaria yeah. Is, is one of them. You know who he is, the guy on Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, who were the other guys who were there? Uh, David Pressman was a friend of mine, and Craig Bierko, yeah. who uh, was the funniest. You may know this story. Do you know the story about Craig Bierko? Some, no, you don't? Okay. Uh, so Craig, so the, a pilot season in Los Angeles is a very important time for actors where they do all the new shows. So my business manager called me and said, you have no money. And I said, how about a little warning? What? going on and so I called my manager and I said I need money you got to give me a job right away and the job that they got me was called LAX 2194 and it was about baggage handlers in the year 2194 did you hear the applause someone tried to applaud when someone you said tried the to applaud yeah, oh, I've, yeah I've seen boys. that yeah. Yeah. yeah and I wore a futuristic shirt whatever it was awful but they paid <laughs> They paid me the money that I needed to drink more and eat more and all that stuff. So then a script called Friends Like Us started to, started to make its way around the people. And 
I saw a character in it that was me. And we all know which character that was. And uh, I was like, I am this guy. I am Chandler. You got to get me in to audition because I'll get it because he talks exactly like I do. And uh, they said, we can't send you in. You're attached to the baggage handler show. (laughs) (laughs) And I kept trying, kept trying. And a couple of my friends said, you're so much like this guy. Can I read this with you? Can you show me how to do it? And I did show them how to do it. And I was like, well, don't hit that word. Hit that word and you'll get it. And uh, they got really close to getting the part based on that. So I was, I was just miserable. I knew the show wasn't going to get picked up. I'm reading Friends Like Us. It's so good. It's character-driven. Courtney Cox is already in it. It's like Jim Burroughs is directing it. It's got all this stuff. So Craig Bierka calls Hank Azaria and I and says can you please come to meet me at this restaurant at 10 o'clock in the morning? I've just been offered two shows, and I need your help to decide which. And my first inkling was, fuck you. (laughs) I don't want to see your success and vote on it. So, (laughs) So Hank and I both showed up. He had two scripts in his hand, friends like us, And a show called Best Friends. That was the other show. Both directed by Jim Burroughs, the best director in town. And we read through both scripts. And, you know, I wanted to, but I'm not a jerk. So I said, you know, you have to do Friends Like Us. And this is back when people were using pay phones. 1994. Nobody had a phone. So he picked up the 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 phone, the pay phone, and called his agent with me two feet away from him and took the other show. And I said, see ya, and I raced home. <laughs> and I was like, the part's still available, they don't have anybody, it starts Monday, please, please, get me in, I'll know, I'll get it. And uh, somebody finally saw the baggage handler show. And it was not going to get picked up. <laughs> Mostly because it was about baggage handlers. <laughs> so I was what's called a safe second, which means their show's not going to get picked up, so we'll hire them for our show. And my manager called me and said, I got very good news for you. you you're reading for Marta Kaufman, the executive producer of Friends, tomorrow morning. And I was like, oh, my God. And I knew my life was going to change. And I went in there on a Wednesday, and I read for Marta Kaufman and David Crane and Kevin Bright. Then on Thursday, I read for the producers. And then on Friday, I read for the network, which was the final thing. There's like 45 people in the room. And there were some other people reading for Chandler, but I knew this was my job. And I, and I did it, and I did it in my way, and I, and I got it. And then we started on Monday, and you know the rest is history. So you've seen it. <laughs> How much of you, when you say that character, you said when I, when I, when that character came up, it was me. It was already me. But then you, I mean, as you referenced earlier, you bring your style of speaking from you and your friends. Like, what do you bring of yourself to that character? 
I mean, it really was, what Chandler was originally was supposed to be an obser- a sarcastic observer of everybody else's lives. That's what it said in the breakdown. So basically Chandler like had the final laugh line after a scene. And all I brought to it was the way that the Murrays and I spoke. That was the different way. And I had done four shows before that and tried to do it. And they were like, talk like a normal person. <laughs> I was That's like, not I th- where the accent I, th- I think this might be funny. You might want to try it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I brought to it, you know, there was a line like, I don't, somebody said something about genitalia being in somebody's house or something, and the line was, well, I don't want that guy in my refrigerator, near my refrigerator. And I said, well, I don't want that guy near my refrigerator. And they were like, whoa, what's that? Keep going. Why did you say that? Why did you say it that way? And uh, so that was sort of where Chandler was born. And then he had to wear a lot of sweater vests. Yeah, there was a lot of sweater vests, a lot of ska fashion back then, you know what I mean? Like like a bass player in a ska band, you know, like big... Listen, say something else. I don't know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. Bass player in ska band did not work. And have a pen when you're doing that. Oh, yeah, Yeah. I know, I know. It's the CBC. We can't quite afford this. I see. Um, (laughs) Trudeau. So here's the thing. Um, I tried to help you. (laughs) Um, How did Chandler change as the person playing with him starts to struggle with addiction more and more during the... He didn't change. What was changing was me. Um, I had a rule that... I would never drink or do drugs while working because I had too much respect for the five people that I was working with. So I was never wasted when I was working. Also, it would totally turn off the timing and it would, it would, it would just be awful. But I did work extremely hungover. And, you know, at one point I was shaking so much that if I was going to cross, if I was going to go from the bookshelf to the table, I'd have to kind of quickly do it and put my hand on the table so I wouldn't shake. And, you know, it got, it got that bad. Um, but Chandler never changed. The writing never changed. It was my ability to pull off this addiction that I didn't understand. Uh, just a brief lesson in alcoholism for you guys that don't know, and addiction, of course. Um, it's a disease. That's the first thing I didn't know. If the, it's an obsession of your mind. So what that means is you think of a martini. And then slowly but surely, it's the only thing you can think about. You can't think about anything else. i got to get a martini. I, gotta, I know I'm supposed to be over here working, but i got to get another martini. Martini, martini, martini. And then once you take that martini, you break the... Um, membrane of sobriety. And once you do that, the obsession, the obsession is gone, but the allergy of your body, which is the second prong of the disease, takes over and says, oh, now we're drinking. I'm going to make you drink as much as you did last time and more. It's progressive, so I'm going to make you drink more than you did last time. 
and you can't stop. I could not stop unless I was locked away somewhere. And at times, I would call drug dealers and have drugs brought in to the place I was locked up in because I was desperate and begging for drugs because the only way I had to feel better. And I did not, I mean, it makes you forget, too. It's cunning, baffling, and powerful. So that thing that I read in the book, you know, alcoholism, you know, didn't care about that. And alcoholism did not care that I was on Friends. And alcoholism did not care about any of that shit. They just, alcoholism wants you alone, it wants you sick, and then it wants to kill you. You know, the thing that always makes me cry, and I hope I, I, hope I don't cry here, is that it's not fair. It's not, it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. That I had to go through that I had to go through this disease while the other five didn't. They got everything that I, that I got. But I, I had to fight this thing and still have to fight this thing. It doesn't go away. It never goes away. More of my conversation on stage in front of a live audience with Matthew Perry after this. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. So there's a scene in the book where you pray to God. Mm. You say something like, like, if you make me famous, what is it? So I was in my apartment, and I read an article about uh, somebody famous. And he was in trouble for doing something. And I, went, I said to myself, I was all alone. I said to myself, what does he care? He's famous. He doesn't care about this little thing. He's famous. The answer to everything is being famous. And then for the first time in my life, I knelt down and prayed. And that prayer was... Please, God, make me famous. You can do anything you want to me. Just make me famous. Three weeks later, I got friends, and God did not forget about the second part. <laughs> but it, what, what sticks out to me about that is that it is just that. There's a couple of moments in the book where you go, I really thought that being famous, I thought that having the number one TV show, I, I had everything I'd always wanted, and it wasn't... Matthew, it wasn't able to fill the holes. I think that was a, that was yeah. a powerful realization for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I had the American dream happen to me. I loved it for about six months. And then I walked in my house and went, oh, man, this is not fixing this problem that I have. How is that possible? 
You, you talk in the book about how you were one of the first, if not the first, celebrity to be open about going to rehab, about going to rehab during Friends, about needing to get help during Friends. Yeah, that wasn't my choice, though. That was just... That was just magazines and stuff taking pictures of me and finding out. And I lost my anonymity that way. And at the time, I thought anonymity was pretty damn important. But I was the first kind of high-level celebrity to go into a rehab. So they were very interested in that. I was on the cover of everything. And it it just made everything harder. On the other end, it made things easier because I couldn't exactly go to a bar and go, can I have a martini, please? <laughs> As I was on the covers of everything. What, what, is that, what does that do to you? I spent a lot of time in the past little while talking about how fame can be dehumanizing. How that when you become a famous person, some of your humanity is robbed from you. Most people in this audience, in fact, I'd say everybody in this audience, if they had a problem, they would be able to get help for that problem without having cameras in their face and without having people screaming at them, asking them questions but are you still drinking or, you know, all this stuff while you're walking down the street? What does, that, what does that do to you? What does that do to you when you're already struggling with this and you have this other layer to it? A really quick answer to that. It's fine when you're doing fine. And when you're not doing fine, it's one of the most awful things in the world because you have to lie and pretend that you're doing well and you don't even understand why you have to do that. But people don't usually, people are generally very nice. Yeah. And then there's some jerks. Every, you know, it's a melting pot. Everybody you know, is, is different. But the key thing is that the reality of I'm going to be famous and it's going to make me happy, you know, is wrong. It's, it's lovely to hear you talk about the show because in, in the book you talk about how in the past you had a complicated relationship with looking back on Friends. And in the book, you liken it to the way that Nirvana never played Smells Like Teen Spirit or that Led Zeppelin didn't like playing Stairway to Heaven. You know, they had a hit song right. and they didn't like to play it on stage. Yeah. Is, is, are these two processes related? Like the coming to peace with that and talking to us so openly about the time on the show? And, and uh, yeah, I mean, a, a little bit. But I didn't watch the show and haven't watched the show because I could go drinking, opiates, drinking, cocaine, like I could tell season by season by how I looked. And I don't think anybody else can, but I certainly could. And that's why I don't want to watch it, because that's, that's what I see. That's what I noticed when I watch it. But I, I, I think I'm going to start to watch it, because it, it really has been an incredible... First of all, it was an incredible ride, but it's been an incredible thing to watch it touch the hearts of different generations and... Like all these, like. It's become this important, significant thing. And, you know, I would, I, I think, I would watch that again. It was really funny, and all the people were nice. And I've been too worried about this, and I would, you know, I want to watch Friends too. It, 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 um. You, you start the book. Friends, lovers, and the big terrible thing. And the first thing you do is declare, I should be dead. And then a few pages later, you ask yourself the question, why am I alive? Yeah. I'm curious if writing the memoir helped you answer that question. Yeah, definitely. Um, The reason that book's any good is I was just setting out to help people. Um, 
they say, I've heard, that if you're having anxiety, you have depression, one of the ways out of that is doing something creative. So I said, okay, and I started writing on my notes app in my phone, touching on all of these subjects, and then sent it out to my agent and manager, and they said, this is very good, but it needs to be 150 more pages. So I got depressed and thought, oh, I thought I was done. But my goal was always, when I wanted to stop, I was like, God, this is too much. It's too much. Stop. Um, I always went to, no matter, no matter how far down the scale I've gone, I'll be able to help somebody who's gone down that far too. So I kept going. And that's the only reason I kept going. What, what does helping other people give you in your own journey then? I think... When I lay in this hospital bed for five months, I had to figure out, well, first of all, I was putting on an ECMO machine. An ECMO machine does all your breathing and does all your um, heart work. It's a machine that does that. And it's what doctors and people call a Hail Mary. It never works. People put them on this machine and they die. But it, you know, it's the, it works occasionally. Um, and five people had an, an ECMO machine that night, and the other four died, and I survived. And my parents were told that I had a 2% chance of making it through the night. So I'll have to live the rest of my life knowing that my parents heard those words. And when something like that happens, you'd think you'd be filled with gratitude. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm so lucky to be alive. That's not what it is. You don't feel that way. You feel pissed. You feel pissed off. You know? It's like, why did this happen to me? And like, God. And like, I vomited into my respirator. And you talk to anybody in the medical profession and go, that guy's dead. There's no way that that guy with that combination of things survived. And as I started to get better, I started to get better. Like, you know, we were told by doctors that. I was so messed up down there that they couldn't even operate for another year and a half until everything was okay enough to go back in. And so I had to live my life that way with really unfortunate things happening. And, and you know, I never thought I'd get to sit up here. I never thought I'd, I mean, it's crazy that I wrote a number one bestseller, you know. You, I mean, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty good, man. Pretty good. <laughs> you said in the book, I, I think you have to have all your dreams come true to realize they're the wrong dreams. What, what are the dreams? That's the, I probably stole from Jim Carrey, I guess. <laughs> what, are the, what are the dreams now? The dreams now, the best thing about me, bar none, is if somebody comes up to me and says, I can't stop drinking, can you help me? I can say yes and follow up and do it. That's the best thing. And I've said this for a long time. When I die, I don't want friends to be the first thing that's mentioned. I want that to be the first thing that's mentioned. And I'm going to live the rest of my life proving that. I guess what I wanted to say at the end was that you have already helped us so much. I've read a lot of books for this show. I have yet to see one as honest and truly vulnerable as this one so thank you so much for it. Matthew Perry, everybody.
All right, that's it for the podcast today. Um, I'm not sure what to say at a, at a time like this. You know, it's obviously been so sad to think about losing Matthew. Um, and I'm, I'm feeling so grateful for this time that you just heard, all that time we got to spend together. Uh, if you want to see a video of it, it's on, like, we, we filmed it. It's on our YouTube channel, youtube.com. Just look for Q with Tom Power, and, and you'll find it there. And um, if you haven't read the book, it's, it's really spectacular, and it gives you a, an idea of what... I mean, among many other things, what the cost of fame really truly can be. Um, Matthew was a, a great man and so kind and so warm and so sweet. And I'm so sad to hear that he's gone. Uh, but I'm glad he was here. All right. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.